The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. My name is Greg Gifford. I have the privilege of being a full-time professor at the Masters University in Santa Clarita. I get to teach biblical counseling. I'm there. That was very emphatic, by the way. It's getting louder. Louder? Louder? Are we there? Is that okay? I hear a little bit of a ring back there, Doug. Are we okay? Um, so the emphasis was on the fact that I am at Masters University where I get to teach full-time as a professor of biblical counseling. It's my full-time vocation. And then I moonlight as an associate pastor at my church getting to work with our counseling ministry. So I have counselors that uh, we're training through ACBC to now go out and serve our body. We have uh, counselees that we only counsel from within our church, so a member or a regular attender at this point. We don't have a counseling ministry that's open to the public because of the needs of our body are so great right now that we don't have the ability to say, uh, come one, come all. So th that consumes the majority of my life, and then uh, in the times where I'm not in those, I'm involved with PTSD of some sort. So it's writing here lately, it's counseling, it's doing my best to use the military experience that I had to minister to those who have faced similar things and are seeking to grow to be more like Jesus. So that's me in a nutshell. I've had the privilege of being here most of the day, some of that being with you. I've also had the privilege of working with an organization called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. I will see some of you in a month or two in Laguna Hills where we're doing another set of instruction out there for ACBC certification. I say that because uh, this past fall, ACBC asked me to write about the topic that we're talking on tonight, and it has to do with uh, the guilt of sexual trauma. And when we talk through sexual trauma and sexual abuse, this is a really sensitive topic, and what's taken place, perhaps you've been paying attention to the news over the past year, is that over the past year, it's almost been an unprecedented time of accusations and convictions for those who have been in public places and have misused their power for the sake of their own personal gain with sexual abuse and sexual trauma. As I was writing this article, this was back in Thanksgiving, there were three evangelical leaders that were forced out of their positions because of sexual allegations that were taking place around them. There were three, just in that brief period. And that's not to include secular organizations. That's not to include hotels that have been shut down, if you think of the owners of those in Vegas. It's not to include some of those who have been in politics. What we're seeing is that, I would suggest, is that tip of the iceberg of sexual abuse. And the reason I would call it the tip of the iceberg is because we know that what we're witnessing isn't everything. That a lot of this stuff takes place in the darkness and that we're only getting to see a glimpse of individuals who are coming forward willing to talk about the abuse that has happened to them. And then conversely, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg for those who have abused. I would suggest, or maybe not suggest, I hate to assume as a counselor, you know, we're taught not to be assuming, right? So I'm trying not to assume on you. But I assume that this topic is dear to you or interesting to you for some reason. 
And a lot of times that's because you've personally been affected by this, whether it's a counselee you know of, a family member you know of, yourself. So I recognize that we're embarking on a, a mildly sensitive journey. So I want to be sensitive to that as we go into this discussion on guilt and trying to portray a biblical representation of guilt and specifically guilt as it pertains towards sexual abuse or sexual trauma. I do think it's important, though, in light of this past year's accusations that we're cautious. Uh, we're cautious about the accusations that are taking place. I think that we should be cautious of coming to conclusions about situations in which we don't know the facts. Proverbs talks about how one seems right until another comes and examines him. So I'm not going to get into specifics of wrongdoings because I don't know enough about some of those circumstances to illustrate. And I will do my best not to share counselee stories that they wouldn't want you to hear. So a lot of the illustrations I'm going to seek to give you tonight will be directly from Scripture, hoping to demonstrate for you from Scripture that sexual abuse and sexual trauma is something that has been faced on a regular basis. So as we begin talking this through, go ahead and open up your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 51. I want to start here, and then we're going to work our way out to a few stories or narratives within the Bible. So I started by saying that 2017 and into 2018 has uh, seemingly been an unprecedented year, but we recognize that sexual abuse isn't new to our society or to societies as a whole. We recognize that Sexual abuse is something that has been around since people have been around. Since men has walked the face of this earth, there's been sexual misconduct. There have been those who have used their power to take advantage of other people. We're going to start by reading a narrative that perhaps is going to make you a bit uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know if you've considered this before, but this is a narrative by the abuser. This is the one who has committed that sexual abuse against someone else. They used their position of authority to take advantage of someone in lesser authority, what we've seen throughout some of this past year. That adds a little bit of context now as we begin to look at Psalm 51. So sometimes we skip over the introduction here and we think maybe this is just an editor's footnote, but this is actually part of the original manuscripts. So look at Psalm 51 and this almost looks like before verse 1. So let's start there and then let's read the first 10 verses. It says, To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Two more. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I'm confident that you've heard the story of the context surrounding this. The context of an abuser who took advantage of someone in a position of lesser authority. Confident that you've heard the conviction of David by Nathan. The way that the passage starts is that this is David's response after Nathan, the bold prophet, comes into him and says, You are the one that has taken the sheep. You are the one that has, that has done this wrong. What's taking place here is that the narrative is demonstrating what the abuser is going through at this point. Um, maybe, maybe this is just me, but there are aspects of Psalm 51 that I really don't like. This isn't Bathsheba's cry. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's not Bathsheba talking. That's her accuser. That's the one that sent her husband to the front lines so that he would die to cover his tracks. I don't like that. And I, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that what's uncomfortable about this is that this psalm is about the accuser coming to repentance and finding forgiveness in God. That's difficult to hear. So many times we want justice. We want payment. We want vengeance to be exacted. And we forget that accusers can find forgiveness too and restoration through what God has done in Christ. Psalm 51 reminds us of that. You know, I don't want to make the narrative say something that it doesn't. But I can't help but think of Bathsheba's awkward position. You know, if you read through this narrative in any place it's suggested, we'll go back to 2 Samuel here in a second, there's never a suggestion that Bathsheba was at fault. Some have extrapolated and said, well, she was walking, she was bathing. That was a customary way of bathing during those times. If you've been to the Middle East, your roof is about the only cool place you can be. Most likely she had a handmaid in there with her anyways. So there's nowhere in the text that says Bathsheba was at fault. In fact, the opposite is said at one point, that Uriah, her husband, was so righteous that he refused to go into her that night, but he slipped on the doorstep. And thought, how in the world could I be with my wife tonight whenever my men are on the front lines? There's nothing to suggest that Bathsheba was at fault here. And I pose the question, how could she refuse a king who is both her executioner and the one who is wooing her in this scenario? You know, what, what choice does she have? I ask. So I say I'm not trying to make the text say more than it says, but I'm saying if you were Bathsheba, the decision would be really difficult for you as well. We think of those who have been positions of lesser authority and those in greater authority who have taken advantage of them. That's Psalm 51. This is what Psalm 51 is about. It really is. It's a psalm about trauma. It's a psalm about someone using their position to take advantage of someone in a lesser position. It's about a male taking advantage of a female in a lesser position. I, I don't like it. I don't like it either. I, hope, I, I know that maybe this creates a little bit of uh, uncertainty or angst, consternation with you. I don't like it either. So it's not only unsettling that we now have the account of the accuser or the abuser, but we also see restoration take place in this psalm. We see that David implores God in a repentant heart to clean him, to change him. To not send him out as he should in God's anger. 
David is seeking restoration from the sexual trauma that he invoked on a woman. That's hard to hear. This is hard to read in that context. So when we do it, when we read it from that light, what it does is, first of all, it helps set a few things in the right perspective for us. I want to demonstrate these to you. David says something in verse number four here, Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I want you to see that, first of all, sexual abuse or trauma, I'm using those synonymously, that is always a sin that is committed against God. It is always a sin against God. Whenever David was confronted by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, his first response was that I have sinned against the Lord. What's he saying when he says that? What's he getting at? David, did you forget about Bathsheba? Did you forget about Uriah? Did you forget about those two? What are you saying whenever you say that you have only sinned against the Lord? That's important to ask. Well, David isn't saying that Bathsheba was unaffected. Uriah was unaffected. Or that their child that passed away because of their sins was unaffected. That's not what David's saying. What David is saying is that God is the ultimate judge for all of sin. God is the one that he will ultimately give an account to because of the sin that he has committed. Yes, absolutely, others were influenced and affected by his heinous act of misusing his authority. But that first and foremost, God was sinned against in this process. I want you to grab your Bible. If you're taking notes, following along, you might write in James 3 here. Let's go over to James 3. I want to show you another instance, something similar to this. James 3. As you're turning there, the context is the way that we use our words. And it's almost as if James drops in a little parenthetical statement. In this parenthetical statement, he shows that there's an incongruity in the way that we would use our tongue against people. And the reason why he says you can't use your tongue like that against people is explained here in verse number 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, making reference to our tongue. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. What James points out here is that one of the reasons why it doesn't work for you to misuse your words against people is because when you sin against people, you're sinning against the image of God in them. You're sinning against the likeness of God, if you use the last part of this verse verbatim. You're sinning against those people who are made in God's likeness. We're all image bearers. So what's taking place when someone abuses another person, sexually so? They're not just sinning against that person, but they're sinning against the image of God in that person. So how is it that David says, against you and you only have I sinned? Well, you are sinning against an image bearer, someone who God has created to represent him on this earth. That's the danger. So, part of the egregious nature of sexual trauma is that when trauma occurs, God is being sinned against and the image of God in man is being desecrated. It's being sinned against. 
It's being denigrated. It's not being held in the esteem that we are called to hold it. So while we see that David is confessing his sin here, he starts by saying, God, me, accuser, the one who is wrong, I have sinned against you first and foremost in this process. But then the second thing that we see is that this sexual trauma always brings with it guilt. I don't know if anyone here is wrestling with that question. Are you always guilty whenever you sin against another person sexually? I would imagine that most of you are okay with that thought. But I want to try and demonstrate that for you and then explain the different types of guilt that one can incur. So this psalm reminds us what David has done against Bathsheba as being a sin that has brought about culpability in his life. That he is wrong. He says it at least in these first four verses and he says it at least in these five ways. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. He says again, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil. We must recognize that every act of sexual trauma, first of all, is against God and secondarily brings with it guilt. This is guilt for the one who has committed the sin much like David. But, as I hope to explain here in a moment, there is also guilt in the way that the sin was responded to. This is a delicate subject, so let's walk carefully through here. We see illustrated in Scripture that there is guilt of both dynamics. I hope to show you some cases here in a second. There is the sinner who has committed the sin of sexual trauma against another individual. But we also see instances where those who have been sinned against have responded sinfully to the trauma. Or those around the individual who has been sinned against respond sinfully to the trauma. Let's go to Genesis 34. This is the first point that you see here in your notes. I'm under responses to trauma, and we're talking about Dinah. Genesis 34, we see that one of the responses that happens here with Dinah is that Dinah is not said to have been wrong. She was said to have been innocent. But the way that her family responds to this is what brings about culpability. So first of all, the story of Dinah is demonstrated here in Genesis 34. This is verse number one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. It's a very rich statement. There's a lot that happened just now. Seized her, lay with her, humiliated her. And verse number three says, His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. All right, let's just talk briefly for a second about what's going on. It's exactly what it sounds like. She's raped. Dinah's raped. She's traveling. She's going to visit another location. And then Shechem sees her. And he rapes her. What's even more awkward about this encounter is that we're told that he, it, this wasn't a, a one-time instance, that he's actually drawn to her and he wants her as his wife after what he's just done to her. 
So here it's fascinating because now dad goes to Jacob and seeks to broker the deal. Okay, well, let me go talk to his dad. Now Jacob, verse number five, heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were very indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Of course the brothers were angry. Of course dad's angry. And then here we have Hamor saying, the soul, verse 8, of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. This is such a strange phenomenon to me. I, I'm like, did they think that was going to work? You know, you, you can't help but ask, does that work? How in the world can you treat someone in such a way and expect that they in any way would want a broker deal? You've just egregiously sinned against their sister and their daughter. Up to this point in the narrative, we see that Dinah is completely innocent. There is nothing here that suggests she is at fault. She has been entirely sinned against through sexual trauma by Shechem. That he's acted upon his sinful desires and he has raped her. But then the narrative progresses on and it begins to talk about the way that Dinah's family responds to this event. So now we're at the point to where Hamor says, my son wants to marry your daughter. And the brothers are saying, oh, no way. There is no way this could happen. So look in verse number 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. The way that that statement is introduced is that the brothers were intending to trick him. They were speaking deceitfully. They had no intentions of following through with that plan. What they were doing is saying, okay, all right, one who defiles our sister and daughter. Here's what you, everybody in your city now has to be like us. We couldn't ever let her be married to a Gentile, so you must all be circumcised by way of ceremonial cleanliness. They trick them. They have no intention of doing that. And then what's worse is that we see now Simeon and Levi actually take advantage of that. The text doesn't say that all the brothers were trying to go and to now pillage and to use their authority in a negative way. What we see is that Simeon and Levi take advantage of these men. So this is verse number 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all of the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed him with the sword and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Listen to this last phrase here. This is verse number 28. They took their fields, their herds, their donkeys, 
all their wealth, verse 29, all their little ones and their wives. Listen to the way that Simeon and Levi repay evil for evil. You have sinned against our sister. So now Simeon and Levi, in their cruel wrath, Jacob describes it later on in Genesis, in their cruel wrath, go and retaliate against the sins committed towards Dinah. They do so even in such a way that they kill innocent people. The text here says that they even plunder little ones and wives. One of the first things that we see here is that there's guilt on two fronts. It's not by Dinah. Nowhere in the text do we see that Dinah was wrong, that she was guilty. We see that her family was guilty in the way that they responded to Shechem and Hamor. We even see that Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink. When he blesses them at the end of his life, he says, you are two men that have cruel wrath because of what they did here. There's nothing within the scripture that condones their response to this sexual trauma. Nothing. What's so condemnable about this is that the punishment didn't meet the crime. They killed every male, all the children. I can't say all the children. They plundered children and they plundered women. So now they have actually brought guilt upon themselves. So in the story of Dinah, what we see is that guilt is incurred by Shechem. He sinned. He was wrong. But we also see that the response of the brothers toward that sexual sin was wrong. And that they incurred guilt on the family because of their wrong response toward Shechem's sinfulness. That's important for you to see and important for you to hear. That Dinah was not wrong. There's nothing in the text that suggests she was guilty, but that her family's response was wrong and that her family's response brought about guilt. Sometimes in sexual trauma, it's that our responses to it can bring about guilt for us. And that's not just the individual who has been sinned against. It's the ones surrounding that individual, the family. Dinah is a great illustration of that. There's another illustration of this. I won't spend too much time on her because we've already talked about Psalm 51. This is Bathsheba. Bathsheba demonstrates a second kind of sexual abuse and a second kind of culpability. I mentioned this just in passing, but there's nothing to demonstrate from the text of Scripture that Bathsheba was guilty or that she had somehow sinned. There's nothing. We've heard commentators extrapolate that she was being immodest, but there's nothing from the text that would suggest she was doing, that, doing something that she shouldn't be doing. The Scripture in no way suggests that Bathsheba is at fault. So what we see in this narrative is that we have front row seats to witness the sinner come to awareness of their guilt and see repentance. That sinner being David. That David alone was culpable, according to this text. That David alone needed to repent. That the narrative of sexual trauma that we see in Bathsheba's life is that the abuser was guilty, that the abuser repented, and that the abuser faced the consequences of their actions. David lost a child through this, after all. So the first instance, we see that Dinah in no way is suggested to be wrong in the way that she was sinned against, but that her family responded in a sinful way. In the case of Bathsheba, we see that Bathsheba was not wrong, that she was taken advantage of, and that her abuser came to repentance, faced the consequences, and was restored back before the Lord. 
But I want to also show you something from Genesis 38. So grab your Bibles and go there with me. Genesis 38. So this is another Tamar. We talked about one Tamar earlier in the Scripture with Absalom. I want to talk about another Tamar. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again, bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. The story goes on. So first of all, we have that Judah has now uh, selected the first wife for his oldest son, but this guy's a terrible person, and the Lord puts him to death. But then the irony is that Onan, baby brother, isn't much better, and that he refuses to perform the rites of being a redeemer with Tamar, so that now she remains a widow, and then the Lord takes the life of Onan, So what goes on to take place is that Judah promises that, okay, now I have lost two wicked sons to Tamar. When my youngest son is old enough, then I will give him to you. It was the promise that he made to Tamar. So now look with me in verse number 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, comforted, excuse me, he went up to Timnah to a sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. The youngest son hadn't been given to her yet. This is creating a problem. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside, and he said, Come, let me lay with you. He has no idea that this is his daughter-in-law. So up to this point, he's put Tamar in a really bad position. Not only the, the, socio, I would say the socioeconomic effects of not having a husband during this time, but that now she, she is left without children. So Tamar makes the decision to trick her father-in-law to lie with him and is consequently impregnated by him. But in this exchange, instead of having money or a goat to pay her, she says, give me some type of collateral. It gives her a staff and a signet. Says, all right, you hang on to this until I can get that goat here. So she does. When they bring the goat back, she's nowhere to be found. A few months go by. What takes place is Tamar is found to be pregnant. Judah's irate. How in the world could this happen? Look in verse number 24. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. Always love how God has a way of humbling people. Verse number 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. 
Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I am. Think about the complexities that are taking place here in this sexual abuse, sexual trauma. So we have, first of all, that she was married to two wicked men, both of them taken by the Lord. The youngest son is promised to her. He never came. And then now she's tricked her father-in-law into lying with her. We don't know her exact motivation, but it seems like she wanted a child. It seems like she wanted a husband. Now we see Judah's response to her. Judgmental. He making immoral decisions to lie with her. We see that in this scenario, Tamar chooses to sin and incur guilt with her father-in-law. She lied. She misrepresented who she was. Put in a difficult place, she made a difficult decision that was wrong. And we also see that Judah was wrong. He committed giving his youngest son to her, and he didn't. He went in and made an immoral decision, thinking that she was a prostitute. Regardless of who she is, he's making an immoral decision, thus incurring guilt. Judah's sinful response towards her is just another reminder that God uses messy circumstances and the line of redemption to accomplish His purposes. We'll see that we're just maybe two generations, three generations removed from King David. Genesis 38 is a reminder that the lineage of redemption wasn't always neat and tidy. But it also reminds us that sexual trauma is often really, really, really complicated. It's really complicated. There are multiple forms of guilt that are possible from sexual trauma. There are those that you're going to counsel that are legitimately sinned against. They were a child. They were without authority, without power, and someone in advantage over them used that. They used that for their own good. There are the Bathshebas of the world. We have the Dinahs of the world that have been sinned against and their family now is responding in sinful ways or encouraging them to respond in sinful ways. We have the Tamars of the world where it's this mixed, murky water of who's at fault, who is guilty here, who made the ultimate wrong decision. We see that sexual trauma is often very complicated. The Bible demonstrates that trauma is often complex And among those complexities, there's still different types of guilt. I don't don't want to muddy the waters any more than they already are muddy, but so far we've just talked about people who are incurring guilt. But did you know that the Bible actually refers to different types of guilt that you can incur? So it's not just have you responded faithfully or have you responded sinfully, but there are levels of guilt and different types of guilt that a person can incur. I want to suggest those to you now. So the first one that you have here in your notes is that of ignorance. Go with me in Numbers to Numbers chapter 15. Go with me to Numbers chapter 15. There's going to be two different types of guilt here that we see demonstrated from Scripture. So far, the Bible teaches that there are multiple forms of people who can incur guilt and sexual trauma and abuse. But there's also multiple types of guilt that can be incurred. First of all is this idea of ignorance. So look with me in verse number 22 of Numbers 15. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses, from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, 
Then, if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. They have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. So pause with me for a second. The Bible talks about how there are legitimate mistakes and unintentional sins for which you can incur guilt. That is one form of guilt. In the Levitical law, there were measures for those who had premeditated sins and sins that were not premeditated. Note that both of those are still sinful. The mistake is still seen as being wrong and is still seen as being a sin, but that the guilt and the atonement for that sin was different. The text in Numbers speaks of it as being a mistake. Moses uses that term multiple times throughout this. The mistake is sinful, but the mistake warrants different response. You know, I just want to be really, really, really clear on this. Make sure we get this on the recording. Make sure you hear me say this. Knock on wood. You're paying attention. Greg is not saying that sexual trauma is a mistake. I'm not saying that's an unintentional sin. What I'm wanting to suggest for you is that this is a type of guilt that can be incurred. So I want to clarify that for you because I'm not suggesting in any way that sexual trauma is, in fact, ignorance. Okay? Everyone got that? You wrote that? Signed it? But, hear this. Think of the complexities that we just mentioned with Tamar. Think of the complexities in modern cultures. Think of when you introduce alcohol, and you introduce substances, and you introduce parties where immorality is taking place, gross immorality, we might say, Think of how things get complicated really quickly. I'm not saying that there is a sin that is unintentional. But what I am saying is that the Bible teaches that you can make a mistake, you're still in sin, and that you still have incurred guilt. So to be clear, sign it, post it, it's recorded. Greg's not saying that sexual trauma is done out of mistake or ignorance. I'm saying that that is a form of guilt that one can incur. The second form is repentant guilt. The Bible teaches that there are those who made decisions that were directly sinful. They knew it was sinful. But that that guilt that was incurred through those sinful actions has now been turned away from in the sinful action. And that repentance has been granted. So go with me to Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 6. We're going to go back to Numbers 15 here in a second. Leviticus chapter 6. I want you to see this idea of repentant guilt or a person who is repentant of their intentional sin. Look with me, verse number 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, 
if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock. And the priest, verse 7, shall make atonement for him before the Lord. He shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is the second type of guilt that we can see within Scripture. It's that when some legitimately sin, that they turn away from that sin and they are repentant. They seek forgiveness and they offer restitution. That there are those who willfully sinned and yet are repentant and have turned away from that sin. The Bible offers this idea that you can find forgiveness. That's good news for us. It's good news because we are people who sin intentionally. But the way that the Bible represents this is that your repentance is manifested through your restitution. There's even a, a law here in the Levitical law that you need to pay back and then add a fifth to it. To demonstrate your repentance. I think David illustrates this in Psalm 51. We've talked about this a few times. David illustrates the fact that you can be legitimately wrong and you can legitimately repent and God will create in you a clean heart. God does offer forgiveness to those who are legitimately guilty. And as painful as this is for us to say at times, that that's also true for the sexual abuser. Psalm 51 is an illustration of that. But we also see that there's a third type of guilt. Go back to Numbers with me. This is one that perhaps you don't consider just a whole lot. The Bible talks differently about this type of guilt, actually. It's the idea of high-handed guilt. In Numbers 15, the last form of guilt that we see is the idea of high-handed guilt. Verse 30 says this, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off his iniquity shall be on him. The Bible talks about the idea of high-handed guilt being guilt that is incurred through deliberate, intentional defiance against God. Literally, the idea of high-handed is that you are exalting yourself. This is a type of guilt that's so severe that the text indicates there's no atonement. No atonement for that one. Maybe that makes us a little twitchy. There's no atonement for this level of sin that you could commit against another person. A high-handed guilt. Hebrews uses a similar analogy. It reiterates the point by saying that this is the type of guilt that one incurs after they continue to deliberately go on sinning. This is where also it's mentioned that God is a God whose hands it's terrible to fall into. If you go on deliberately sinning, woe to you. Woe to you in your high-handed guilt. There's no place for atonement. There's no room for forgiveness. Because what's taken place 
is that those who are defiantly raising themselves against God, they are refusing to repent. This is a high-handed guilt that comes from willful, deliberate, premeditated, defiant sinning against God, and it brings with it the severest of punishment. You will be cut off. The Old Testament times has had different significance. In the New Testament era, we see Hebrews 10 refer to the same concept being the idea that God will not deal gently with you. Woe to those who commit high-handed guilt and sexual abuse against others. Woe to them. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There won't be repentance found for you if you deliberately go on sinning. As you minister to those who have gone through sexual trauma, you want to help them unscramble some of what's taken place. This is really difficult to say in our time. But there are different responses that they themselves or others around them could have taken during that time. Think of the family of Dinah. There's nothing in the text that suggests she sinned. Her family sinned. Jacob curses Simeon and Levi. says, you've made me stink in the land. You've endangered the rest of us. You've taken innocent life. Your wrath is cruel. The Bible talks about how there are those who are not at fault. There are the Bathshebas of the world. They were sinned against by someone in a position over them. The Bible talks about how there is this amalgamation of both. How there can be responses on the one who has been sinned against and there are responses of the sinner. But the Bible then also talks about the different types of guilt. There's guilt of ignorance, there's guilt that is repentant, and then there's high-handed guilt. Each of these are still sinful, but each warrants a different response toward them. As best as you can when you're ministering to someone going through sexual abuse, you're trying to find these categories where that individual fits. Not so we can box them in, but so we can best know how to minister to them. Have you responded faithfully to this time? Because if you have, we're here to encourage you, to equip you, to walk in a way that continues to remain faithful. This is also true for those of us who minister to the abuser. As much as this grates against our skin at times. There is a such thing as repentant guilt. to where abusers can find hope for what they did to their family member. That abusers can find hope for what they did to the one who was in a lesser position. It doesn't mean that life will go on as normal. It doesn't mean it's without consequence. But what it does mean is that forgiveness can be had. That's difficult to say. So I want to finish this section by just talking through what has happened when guilt is incurred. What has happened when guilt is incurred? So as you've sought to understand the person you're ministering to who has suffered from sexual abuse and sexual trauma, you're seeking to discern their response and the type of guilt that's been incurred toward them. And then how do we help them going forward? This is the Davids of the world as the sinner. This is point number 4A. We're encouraging them to seek forgiveness. We're encouraging them to seek forgiveness. This is something that is distinctively Christian. We are encouraging you, the abuser, to repent of your sins and to turn from them. To find forgiveness. We want them to see that what they've done is egregious, but it's egregious because it's first and foremost against God. 
and then against God's image bearer, whomever that was. This is distinctively Christian because we're saying you may have penalties to face for what you have done, but we want you to repent and to gladly accept those penalties. They must seek forgiveness because of the way that they have sinned against God and His image bearers. The text of Matthew 24 says that that's even to be done with immediacy. That those who are culpable must do it and they must do it now. Even if they're offering their gift at the altar, they must stop and they must go repent of their sin. 1 John 4 says that you can't be in right, you can't be in right relationship with others and not be in right relationship. I think I just got that backwards. It's 8.50. You guys know what I mean? Okay, so you can't be in right relationship with God and be in wrong relationship with others. I think I got it right that time. Tell me if I'm not making sense. You can't be in right relationship with... Okay, I'm just going to move on. I'm having trouble saying that statement. You guys know what I mean. All right, uh, so I'm at point number 4A1. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament use this idea of confirming your repentance. Confirming your repentance as the abuser. After the sinner has sought forgiveness, they must confirm that repentance. Matthew 3.8 uses the idea of bearing fruit. We saw in Leviticus that restitution should be offered. We see that even Zacchaeus is a great example of what it means to sin against others and to go back and to seek to offer restitution for what has been done. Confirming repentance means that you're not just off the hook for any of the consequences that you have incurred for this sinner. That part of the reasons and ways that you are going to demonstrate you are in fact repentant is that you are going to bear the consequences of your sins. Confirm your repentance through graciously accepting the consequences of your sins. If that means imprisonment, it means imprisonment. If it means the child is separated from you, the child is separated from you. Ultimately, this is a means of you as the sinner confirming your repentance toward the sin against. So first of all, we've talked through the idea of incurring guilt as the sinner now I want to just try and offer a few reflections for those who have been sinned against. I want to do that from Psalm chapter 10. So this is point 4B in your notes. It talks about understanding God's character. Understanding God's character. This is a perhaps a really strange place to go, so let me explain why I would say understand God's character. Each time when egregious sins are talked about within Scripture, we see a consistent theme for the writers of Scripture equipping that person. We see them pointing back to the character of God for the one who has been sinned against. Think of the way that Peter approaches it in 1 Peter. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. Think of the way that Paul approaches it in Romans chapter 12. Don't repay evil for evil. Why not? Repay evil with good. Because God says vengeance is mine. He's the avenger. 
Think about, so 1 Peter chapter 2, chapter 4, the way that you live out a life in response to evil is by understanding that God is a faithful creator. He's good. You think of Romans chapter 12. How do you overcome evil with good? Paul says you need to know something about the character of God. He's an avenger. He will do a better job than you will ever do at avenging. We see something similar here in Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is a verse that I'll frequently use in counseling with those who have been sinned against in great ways. Why, O Lord, verse 1, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. He goes on to talk about all the heinous things that the wicked can be known for. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. Calls out again here in verse number 15, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And then verse number 16, listen to the things that are referenced about who God is. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Those who have been sinned against need to know about the justice of God. He hears the desire of the afflicted. He will do justice to the fatherless and oppressed. That's where this text goes. That's where Paul goes. That's where Peter goes. Entrust yourself to a God who is just. But entrust yourself to His wrath. God will break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. He will call their wickedness to account. It's scary. That's the Hebrews 10 passage. Directly in the context of God exacting vengeance upon a person's unrepentant sin. Entrust yourself to His goodness. One of the things that those who have been sinned against egregiously need to understand is that God is good. He listens to the afflicted. He avenges those who are His kids. This psalm reminds us that the one being oppressed has to understand the nature and the character of God. They need to know some things about God. Be willing to take them through a discipleship plan that helps them understand the attributes of God. God will exact justice and wrath, and He is a good God. So how is it that we are enabled to do good in this time? Because we understand the nature and the character of God. I don't have to be the avenger because He is. He's better at it than I am. I don't have to exact wrath because He will. He's better at it than I am. So first of all, we want to help them understand the character of God and secondarily, we want to help them own their response toward their offender. Own your response toward your offender. For those who have been egregiously sinned against and they are in no way guilty, they are in no shape or form incurring guilt on their part, we're saying stay faithful. Let's help facilitate justice for your avenger. Let's help 
facilitate justice for the one who has sinned against you, but you continue to stay faithful to your walk with Jesus. For the ones who are struggling with bitterness and anger, with retaliation, with repaying evil for evil, we're wanting them to see that God has given them the grace to respond towards these difficult times. That God has given them the grace to respond towards their offender. That God has given them the grace to do what honors God in this moment. You don't have to control the response of your offender, the depth of their repentance. But what you do have to control is your response toward your offender. You do have to control the way that you are responding now going forward. And the promise is from Scripture that God will give you the grace to do what's right. So I've offered this point C and that there is no in-between guilt. You're not on the fence. There's no like gray area of guilt. There's no in-between The Bible offers clarity for those who have been sinned against that you are not guilty. You didn't do this. This isn't your fault. They will give an account. They will pay. They should pay for the actions that they've taken. We want those who have been affected by sexual trauma to understand that if they were not guilty, that they in no way should face shame, that they in no way should feel guilty, that they in no way should be embarrassed, but that God will call to account the sins of their oppressor. If they were guilty, if you are ministering to the abuser, the one who sinned against others, we call them toward repentance. We call them toward change. We call them towards greater Christ-likeness. We have to help them synthesize as the abuser that they too can find forgiveness through the work of Christ on their part. Psalm 51 reminds us of that. As much as it irks us and it grades against us, I've said that on multiple occasions, as much as that may happen to see an offender come to repentance, that's what David was doing and God was restoring him. There is no in-between guilt. So let me give you one final principle and then I'll hit the other in passing. There are those who struggle with feelings of guilt and they were not guilty. One of my favorite passages to take them to is this 1 Corinthians passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Think of the one who has been egregiously sinned against through sexual abuse or trauma and they were not guilty. How do we understand shame for them? 1 Corinthians 4 is a passage that I will often take them to. And this is a passage where Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about the judgments that he makes of himself. He's talking about how he wants to be viewed as being someone who stewards the mysteries of God. But here's what he says in verse number 3. With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's not a big deal that they're judging me. I always love Paul. Like he just sounds like this trailblazer of a guy. It doesn't really bother me if you judge me or anyone else judges me is the way that he starts this. In fact, I don't even judge myself. But I'm not thereby acquitted. Not aware of anything against myself. Think of what he's saying. You or any other human court are not the ultimate judge over me. I'm not the ultimate judge over me. I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Like, I I think I'm awesome, so now I must be awesome. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that I'm not aware of anything that I have going wrong. 
but that doesn't mean that I'm off the hook here. But, this is the last part of verse number four, it's the Lord who judges me. What's important to hear in this passage is that Paul says, it's ultimately not what you think about me or any other human court. That's liberating to some degree, but perhaps more liberating for someone struggling through the sins committed against them is that not, it's not ultimately what I think about me. There may be a temptation to experience shame, to feel worthless, to feel guilt, to feel damaged. What we want those individuals to see is that ultimately it's not what they think about themselves, it's what God thinks about them. It's the way that Paul finishes it. It's the Lord who is my judge. The Lord judges me. When a person is struggling with unwarranted feelings of guilt and shame, we want them to see themselves as God sees them. They can't be their own judge. It's not their place. They can't self-judge. We have to help disciple them, counsel them, show them that we want God's authority to be over them. We want them to prioritize God's truth about them over their truth about them. And in so doing, we can help them see that they're adopted, they're valued, they've been redeemed. We can help them find their true identity and what God through Christ has done on them, not the way they feel about these past circumstances. This next is just simply the idea of counseling those who have a sensitive conscience. Uh, meaning that we want to help bolster individuals who feel they are at fault when they're not. They have a sensitive conscience that needs to be bolstered with the Word of God. So we want to help retrain their conscience. We want to calibrate it to what God's Word says. And when we do so, then we will help them see that you're not guilty for what's been done against you. That individual is guilty for the way that they sinned against you. This is simply the idea of counseling those with a sensitive conscience. So I have to finish. We're out of time. Note that I'll stick around for a few questions if you have any. So as a counselor, I'm not trying to assume. But I know that there are those of you who are here and this has been a direct impact in your own life or the life of someone around you. If you take anything away from this, I want you to take away that sexual trauma is ultimately a sin that is committed against God. But He is still a God who offers forgiveness and atonement for those who have committed such crimes. For those who have been traumatized, we want them to understand their guilt. And we want them to understand guilt, not their guilt, but we want them to understand guilt from a biblical perspective. And in the midst of this difficult time, God has provided them with the resources that they need to honor Him. If they will pursue God's ways as being better and authoritative, they will see God continue to work through this difficult time to form them in the image of His Son. Thank you guys. I owe you four minutes. Thank you for being gracious. I will gladly stick around and converse. If you have any questions or clarifications, I would be glad to offer those to you. So thank you so much. I hope you guys have a wonderful night. Get some sleep. I'll see you tomorrow. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.